Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Steve Michio. Steve is the Chief Executive Officer of People USA, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping families and people with behavioral health challenges. Steve is an innovator in crisis response and mental health services. For over two decades, he has introduced groundbreaking models and approaches that reduce hospital utilization, incarceration rates, and healthcare spending. Steve was the first in the United States to embed peers in hospital psychiatric ERs. He also created the Rose House model of peer-operated crisis respites, the transitional care wellness team model, and he developed unique training programs for hospitals, local government units, and behavioral health organizations across the USA. We're excited to have Steve with us today to discuss peer support and his organization, People USA. Steve, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Grant. Steve, I need to start with acknowledging the significance of what you've done in your career thus far. You've reduced hospital utilization, incarceration rates, healthcare spending. These are significant feats, both at a human level and cost consideration. Where did you first recognize the need for change to mental health access and affordable care systems? Yeah, that that has to go back to the beginning for me is when I was first hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital for bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder. And mm. that's my introduction to the mental health system in our world. And it wasn't the best experience. And, and yeah. for many people, I know it's not. And that's where it started for me. And what I recognized was that I never in my hospitalization or even in my discharge from the hospital into the community and to services, heard the word hope, heard the word recovery, heard the word, you know, better quality of life. What I was hearing was, you're going to be on meds the rest of your life. You're going to be bipolar for the rest of your life. And you're going to have to deal with these mood swings, you know, for the rest of your life. And that's, that's pretty defeating when you hear yeah, that, you know? And so that, that to me was like, Oh, something's got to change. I didn't know what to change until I could find my own recovery. And my own recovery came from going to a peer support group of people with bipolar disorder. And it was uh, probably a year after I was out of the hospital and I was still fighting with medication and my psychiatrist and all that stuff. And I heard the stories of the people in the room around me and they were my story. And I was Mm -hmm. like, wow, I'm not alone. Knowing I wasn't alone was so powerful that my hope, my self-determination and my drive towards empowering my own recovery became number one for me. And what I mean by that is it didn't have to be that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was Steve Michio and I could do pretty much what I want to do in life as long as I believed that I could do better for myself. And that's where it started for me. That's a great start, man. I appreciate your openness around that and your transparency and sharing that with us. What did you experience in life and done professionally that prepared you to make these inroads to mental health care? After I recovered, I was in recovery. I I got a job at a hospital in the emergency room as a psychiatric screener. Oh, okay. And that helped me prepare in that term of understanding how you could treat people when they came into an ER, how you could treat them better, you know, how you could be kind to them, how you could listen to them. And I used to steal the best food in the hospital for people. And, you know, just, just doing the right thing for people felt good to me. And I said, well, 
I could, you know, if I can do this, anybody should be able to do this, right? Yeah. So then the other piece of it was understanding how difficult it was to be on medication, the challenge of being on medication. And, and people would always say, the first question I would always get is, did you take your meds? If I was acting a little strange or whatever, like, oh man, I'm so tired of hearing that, you know? It's not about the meds. You know what these meds are doing to me? They're killing me. Right, you know? right. and, and people don't understand that piece of it. So we, as I would say, chronically normal people in our in our communities, we get upset when people are not taking their medication or following a behavior plan or whatever it is that they're doing, but they don't understand the challenges of it. And I wanted people to start to understand how difficult it is to recover and what would be better for people to recover. So it was really a common sense approach to treating people with dignity, respect, and, and valuing their story, you know, mm. understanding their story before you try to infuse your story on them, even as a professional. Yeah. And, and so I, I started doing the research. And while I was doing the research, I started understanding that something had to change in the system if we're going to treat people better. If people are going to have better outcomes in life. It's not about just treating people better. It's that, you know, our expectation should be that people can live a better life if they're given the right supports. So that's, that's where my, my kind of training came from. I, I was educated in psychology. I was a psychology graduate from, from a four-year college. And so I had the basic understanding, you know, of, of psychology, but sometimes I just wanted to throw the books out and say, wait a minute, we're, are we doing this right? You know, and yeah. so I questioned it all. So that that's, you know, that's where it all started for me. And then I got this interview to be the executive director of this company called People Inc. And our name mm -hmm. wasn't People USA back then. It was Projects to Empower and Organize the Psyche, Psychiatrically Labeled Incorporated. Wow. Long name, but, but it turned out, you know, it was an acronym for P-E-O-P-L, capital, and then lowercase e, People Inc. And it was an advocacy organization. And I was so excited. This is This is an organization that can help change the system. I really believe that wholeheartedly that I could just get this job and change the system. And so after several interviews, I think five interviews altogether, I got the job. And so then I started to understand the the national peer support in the in the country, you know, what was going mm -hmm. on, the leaders, the disruptive innovators that were mm -hmm. the psychiatric patients who were saying, We've been treated horribly for years. We want something better. And they were the grassroots people that were out there advocating, which was powerful. And I was learning all about that. So I wanted to become a really strong advocate. And that's that's all the organization was at that time. People incorporated had just an advocacy organization. So that's all we were doing. But I was quickly humbled when I tried to approach the hospital that I had been hospitalized in and said, I want to help you. And they said, get out of here. We don't we're yeah. not interested. You know, there was no interest at all. I was like, why wouldn't you be interested? In right. I didn't understand, you know? So that's, that's where it all kind of started for me. And, and then from there, it just, you know, my, my, my business sense, cause I had, you know, I'd run businesses, you know, in the past and my, my just logic of people need to be treated better came together. Yeah. And that's where I it I love the, the some of the things you're, you're tossing out here, chronically normal, the disruptive innovators, you know, and how you're coming at this of, you know, it's so easy to say, well, you know, did you take your medication or what's wrong with you versus you're saying, you know, what's happened to you? You, know, you want to find someone to start getting some good food, getting them a blanket and maybe something to sit down and getting to know somebody. My dad used to say, uh, you know, everybody has a story and everybody's had something happen to them that's changed them. 
So don't judge a person by the chapter you walk in on. Exactly. And so this idea is what you're doing here is saying, I, I, I want to understand, you know, you, who you are and what's happened to you. And I love to come alongside you. And I love this idea of your program. I think when you said these things earlier, I think it, I'll probably sum up, sum it up at the end for us as well, but it's about a, a program of hope, future, and not being alone in your life. Yeah. What, what great pillars to have into place. I, I would love, you know, People USA going from, it sounds like an advocacy program through People Inc., People USA, this is a peer-run organization, and mm -hmm. it was born, as you've described, out of the human rights movement with the belief that people with lived experience can achieve greater results if we come together and work as a team. So if you would, Steve, introduce us to People USA. Sure, sure. As I said, we were started out as an advocacy organization. We did change the name to People USA because there were other people inks around the country that we were getting confused with and stuff. So we tried to just, you know, vary the name. But the first thing we did was I advocated and advocated and I saw how far advocacy could go. And then I thought, well, maybe if I could provide a service, I could show the system how to do it. You know, my first start was putting people with lived experience in the emergency room to greet people when they came in. How nice was that? You know, you could say, hey, Seriously. how are you? My name's Steve. You know, I, I am someone with lived experience, but I want to welcome you to the hospital and I'm going to work with you throughout this entire process. And I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on. And if you're hungry, I'm going to get you food. If you're you know, thirsty, whatever. And we're going to treat you with that dignity and not traumatize you, which was what yes. people experience in emergency rooms, right? Mental health evaluations, hospital treatments. Those are actually very potentially traumatizing events, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Truly. Yeah. I mean, most people, and, and, and me too, was when I went into to the nurse, you know, to tell them why I was there, the whole affect of the nurse, you know, the, the receptionist oh, yeah. changed and, and a oh, security yeah. guard suddenly walked out. Yes, and exactly. Brought into this very tiny room and locked in there. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's extremely traumatizing. And I know that in my, in my practice, I will work so very hard unless someone really needs hospitalization to keep them out, even from the evaluative process, I'll do extra days. We'll do calls in between anything that needs to be necessary because going there and God love them in the ER and in the, in the psychiatric residents, all very well intended, mm -hmm. but just inherently it can be not all hospitals, but some hospitals, it can be a very, you know, traumatic experience compounding what's already difficult and what they're in. So yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was my first foray into uh service delivery. And then I was designing at that time, the respite house. So I wasn't the original creator of respite. I was looking to create a hospital diversion house specifically mm -hmm. So that people didn't have to go to the emergency room right. and they didn't have to go to inpatient. That was my goal. So I never called them respites until the peer community and the the professional community said, you know, crisis diversion doesn't sound as good as respite. <laughs> so I said, whatever you want to call it. I don't That's care. Right. Let's just create it. This right. is what I want. <laughs> so I started writing the model for it. And it, it was basically a, a five-day stay in a bed and breakfast style house where you'd have 24-hour peer support, non-medical, so we weren't prescribing medications or, or any per, you know clinical treatment, but we would connect you to the appropriate services in the community. So I wasn't throwing out the baby with the bathwater, no. as you say. I was trying to create an integrated system of care that was focused solely on the individual that was coming into our doors. Nice. And so the respite house 
was designed and at that time and I put professional music instruments in it. I put professional art equipment in it. I put things in there that distracted you from your traditional thoughts of diagnosis and poor me and all that good stuff, right? So I opened without a manual. I opened without guidelines. I just opened it with, just opened it. with love, hope, empathy. And Get the need met. That's right. That's <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> and so, and, and it worked. And, and, and at the time I remember I, was, I would go to provider meetings, you know, with other hospitals and clinicians and, and different provider agencies. And they were like, what are you opening? And I said, it's a crisis house. <laughs> like, okay, good luck with that. You know, <laughs> so, the expectation was failure on, on most people's part. My expectation was that it was going to be a better experience for people. And it became, yeah. and over the years, it's grown. It's grown nationally. It's grown worldwide. I've, I've helped open over 40 across the country and and a few in the Netherlands. And we're looking at other countries now we're working with. And and just to remind, you know, just to, to think more about this, I didn't do this to save money. I didn't do it to, you know, uh, to, to, to be the panacea of, you know, of care. I did it because it just made sense to give people a better opportunity. What I found out in the long run was that it did actually save money and it did actually create better outcomes for people. So yeah. all everything I've done in the organization over the years has resulted in that, which is wonderful. Uh, but the goal is always to treat people better, to give them a yeah. better opportunity to recover, to give them the self-determination and empowerment to make the choices to recover, yeah. which many people don't often have. Yeah. And, and so that's where I came from. So through that, I, I built more in the organization. I built mobile teams. I built the crisis stabilization center. I built recovery staff that would just be out in community, not really mobile teams, but just meeting people in community where they are. So they didn't have to go to the crisis services at all. You know, so it was more of a prevention, you know, method that I did. And we just kept building and building services based on the mapping of my communities, what was missing, and I would build it. And, and it just complemented our system of care. And that's where I that's where I basically work from when I do this work. That's such a cool, intuitive, you know, sense on your part. You know, there's we could say there's basically two models out there. There's a the business model and there's a the relationship model. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people try and meet the relationship needs by building a business model first. No. Hit the relationships first, find out what's necessary, almost kind of reverse engineer it, if you will. And you will find that when you do the relationship model first, really meet people where they're at and <laughs> do some things that are innovative, maybe even without some guidelines. I don't mean to be, you know, saying <laughs> that you do you do it recklessly or like a rogue, but you do smart things. You put these things into place. And funny enough, when you meet that relational piece first, all the business stuff can kind of just fall into place around it, can it? That's exactly what's happened because the state has now adopted the respite service in New York state to where they're yeah. licensing it and it's growing. That's Same so cool. thing with stabilization. Says. So what I did was practice-based evidence, not evidence-based practice, but practice-based evidence. That's good. I, I made sure that it was safe, that it was effective, that it made a difference. And then I would share that, you know, with yeah. local governments, with the state, with the federal government. To say, look, this works. Why don't we try this? You know, why don't we we expand on this? And and that's that's what's happened in the past two years. It's amazing to see what's happening and how it's changed. You know, it's kind of shifting the paradigm a little bit in the world, yeah. which is really nice to see. So you have these safe centers, you have these community, you know, services, and the folks can transition into get back into society, et cetera, crisis stabilization. 
You also provide direct service in addition to these direct services. You also provide trainings and you work with other groups, state governments, educational, I know the, the police department support. Expand upon some of the trainings you do to uh, inform and equip other people dealing with these folks in need. Sure. With, with so much. With, with the police, what we do is crisis intervention team training. And it's a 40-hour yeah. training that police officers go through where there is a clinical instructor, there's a police enforcement instructor, and then there's people with experience instructing. And then community providers come in as well to instruct on their services mm -hmm. and whatever. And what it does is it gives an officer another tool. It teaches them how to use compassion and let it, instead of the command voices that they have. What a great tool. The tool of compassion. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And when an officer knows how to engage someone that's, you know, dealing with anxiety, dealing with depression, dealing with suicide, whatever it is, and they learn how to listen with compassion and understand the individual and then be given the resources on where that officer could actually take that person instead of the jail or emergency room. It's powerful. And Absolutely. the officers that come out of those trainings say it's the best training they've ever had. And yeah. they use our services all the time now because they love what they're getting instead of going to jail or instead of going to the emergency room and having to be off the road waiting yeah. for that person to be seen and then going back on the road. You know, it's also hard too for the officers and that's traumatic for them as well. If they don't know how to understand, how to approach this, come at it with compassion to have resources available, it's traumatic for them too, because the person is struggling. They're trying to do the best they can to contain something that they don't know what they don't know about how to manage those times. So giving them those tools and understanding of it, compassion as a tool. In fact, it, it, it really deescalates everything, doesn't it? And allows the officer to feel good about that call and to be able to hand them off to somebody that then they can go home at the end of the day and say, that was a really productive day and a worthwhile time that I got to intervene with that somebody in need that I may not have known about before. That training sounds really good. Yeah, it, it it's incredible because it reduces injury for everybody. Yeah, and, exactly. That's a good way to look and, at it. Yeah, and it creates better outcomes for everybody. So, and we do a day of just, post-traumatic stress for the officers themselves because they don't nice. realize the trauma that they're under. No. And when that starts to come out, it's incredible. And yeah. we stay connected to those officers afterwards where they stay. Oh, connected do you really? To us. Yeah. And and they want that support. They want that help, you know? So it's, it yeah, really. That vicarious, that, that, that vicarious trauma is real. It is. And some mental health challenges are very perplexing and yeah. you don't know what to make of them. Yep. And it can be, you know, kind of destabilizing too for the officers doing that. And, so I think that's great that you guys provide that post-care for them yeah. as well. You know, I mentioned the reduction in hospital utilization, lower incarceration rates, reduction in healthcare spending that you've created through your program. And again, those are significant reductions. And I love the idea that you started with a relational need first and how all these things tend to fall into place. When we do right things, good things happen like this. But out of curiosity, what are some of the cost benefits that you are seeing from this? We have a, a three-bed, four-bed, and, and now six-bed respite houses. The four-bed has a, a cost reduction of nearly $1 million a year yeah, in non-hospitalization, non-critical care. That's huge. Uh, which is incredible. And that doesn't even take into benefit the amount of work we do with the individuals that come, the guests that come to our houses. We get them into employment services or the services that are going to improve their quality of life. So there's another cost benefit to it, which we're trying to capture, which is really hard to do. But 
but there is an additional cost benefit to it in the outcomes of the individuals we serve. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Continuing education is both a requirement and a learning opportunity, but finding the right CE provider can be challenging. AATBS, a triad company, offers continuing education for psychologists, social workers, marriage and family therapists, counselors, and behavior analysts. CE courses are available both individually and as part of our new All Access Pass. All Access Pass provides a library of over 250 unique courses. That's more than 800 hours of CEs, with new courses being added every month. As a special offer, Behavioral Health Today listeners can save 15% on CE purchases. Visit us at aatbs.com bht and enter promo code bht15 during checkout. That's aatbs.com bht. Check out our library and check off your CE requirements today. Well, I wanted to talk about that piece too, because it benefits financially. And that's always fun to kind of see. And, you know, we kind of check the box on that, but, but the benefits to individuals, their families, our communities, expand upon that just a wee bit more for us. Yeah. They, they get to kind of break. It's really about breaking the cycle of going from home to crisis, to hospital and living that, that life of illness. Yes. And we're about a life of wellness. We're about a life of hope, right? So through, through the process that we work with people, when we see them, start to get jobs, when we see them start to, even using their entitlement services differently and better for themselves on the social determinants, they're, so that that improves. Their their relationships improve. Their relationships with their families improve. So you're, you're not just serving one individual when you serve you know, the people in our community. You're serving the community and you're tying those pieces together. And that's where integration is also key. And I'll talk about the training for the integration in, in a minute. But that's where it's also key that you're creating a more efficient and effective community while you're doing, just, again, still serving the individual. Exactly. Really good. You you talk, you know, we know that this is a peer uh, run organization. How do you recruit folks and how do you train them? Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is many of the folks that we hire are former guests in our crisis okay. services, which That's is awesome. really cool because they've learned so much and they come in with such a passion and such a focus on, on making sure that other people don't experience the traumas that they've experienced in life. Well, 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 there are some things that are just uniquely set up where it takes one to know one. Yeah. It just does. And sound like this is one of those areas for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then word of mouth. I mean, you know, we're, I, I always tell people I want to be the Disney world of, of behavioral health. I want people to love their jobs. I want them to enjoy their jobs. I want them to live complete full lives. And how do you do that? Well, you build better customer service, you build better outcomes, you, you train your staff extensively on how to do this, but also you focus on their wellness. Mm. So we're, we're a, a well-rounded organization that focuses on not just the wellness of the people we serve, but the people that work for us have to also be well to do their jobs well. So we're really not having workforce issues. You know, I keep hearing around me. <laughs> we're not having that problem. We're having I can't imagine you're yeah, waiting list of people that want to work for us, which is, is that right? Yeah. 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 That's so good, man. It, with, with that kind of response and with a business model like this, that's focused on relationships and giving people a different story, a life of wellness, not a, not a cycle of illness. I think that's so key. I, I love some of these, these the, these little phrases you're putting out there because they're 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 paradigm changers. They're different ways for us to label things that we so kind of naturally use, but we keep 
we keep a cycle in place. It doesn't have to be so. And as you talk about that, and we're kind of mentioning this, you mentioned earlier that I, if I heard you right, you've taken this model into just internationally in about 40 different other locations. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. What are you, what are you doing there? Share with us a little bit about how this is expanding and how you come in and mentor and consult with folks to do something similar. Yeah, this this is an interesting story because I used to be so proud of the work I did that I'd go out to conferences and I would present and I'd get like maybe two or three people in the in the, in the room. I'm like, okay, well, I'll start with two or three people, right? Pretty it just cool. wasn't the subject that people understood. So nobody was embracing it at the time. But I would go out and talk about it. And once in a while, somebody from one of the states would say, you know, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Can you come visit us or can we come visit you or whatever? Yeah. And we'd build a relationship. And then before you knew it, I was working with the state government or the, the local county governments to build these services. And, and that's where it all started. And it just kept kind of snowballing for me. And now I just got back from Idaho and from Washington State. Washington State, we just opened, helped them open three respites out there that I went to visit and, and do some training. And then in Idaho, we helped them develop and build four youth stabilization centers which Fantastic. are awesome so it's that it's that word of mouth too that's getting out there that's that this is a model that works it's models that we should all be embracing and and i think you should you should also mention that i don't just hire people with experience that have like high school or college level experience i have clinicians i have psychologists yeah. i have people that will disclose that yeah i've i've been through stuff so when I say we're 100% pure run, it's nice to say that it's not just the traditional, you know, people always thought, well, they're just people that used to be in psychiatric hospitals. Well, they might be, but they might also have a PhD. They might have, a, you know, a social work license or whatever. And those are the people that we're attracting and pulling in. You mentioned a moment ago, some teens, and I was thinking about what you see in the community. I, I, when I mean community, I mean like our national community and the struggle that our our teens are going through that I don't think we've parented very well. I don't think we protected them in many ways yeah. that they need to be protected and raised and and supported and shepherded through some really challenging years of their lives. And so there are really significant needs and for teens. And I love the idea that you I, I heard you right four four places for for teens. And I love that. What are some of the gaps in services that you see, Steve, around the need for teens right now? Yeah, well, we we were an adult organization, and in 2017, when we opened the first crisis stabilization center, we noticed a lot of teens and youth and and, and whoever was coming in to the stabilization center. Yeah, and so what's going on here? And and it was a time of COVID. It was also you know we're we're embedded in this social media, you know, dilemma of it's just not a good thing. It's just no. not. And and so we're experiencing all this, and the kids coming through the doors were suicidal, yeah. some were homicidal, some were just, you know, anxiety, a lot of anxiety, a lot of problems. So I started diving into youth services and saying the gap, the gap is huge. Yes. Not, you know, and, and it's, it's sad to say that we need clinics in every school, but we need clinics in every school because every school is, is struggling with the, the children and, and the yeah. youth. But what I'm yeah. noticing is there's a, a large divide that happens when a youth goes to a clinician, but won't speak to the parents or the family, you know, mm -hmm. work with the family. We didn't know that we, when we had kids come into our place, we pulled the parents right in. Absolutely. At the appropriate, at the appropriate times and say, yeah. 
how do we do this together? You know, because we want to help the parents understand what the youth is going through. We yeah. want the youth to understand that the parents want to help. They just don't know how. So we're going to work with both of them to get them to where they can all work together. And yeah. so that's where I'm seeing huge gaps in our services across the yeah. country. Well, there are models out there right now that are just asinine around this idea that, well, we keep the kids separate from their parents. We, you know, the parents understand we keep them. We can do a better job with your kids and you can do as a parent. There is nothing more foolish as a message than that. And there's yeah. nothing more dividing because the child needs the parents to be involved. They want the parents to be involved. And the parents want to be involved, just like you said. But sometimes they don't, they don't know how to be, how to show up, what to say. But more times than not, they are really well-intended. And they want to be there in kind of a holding capacity to join. And the children need that piece. So I love the idea that right out of the gate, pretty much when appropriate, but you bring them right, you bring them together and say, hey, again, we can go through this together. And there's hope in this family unit if it's there. So that's that's really well done. We always love Hallmark stories, you know, and as part of our podcast, you have one, I mean, besides yourself, clearly, holy cow, but you have a Hallmark story of someone who's gone through your program that really stands out to you. Oh, I have so many now, <laughs> my 25th year. So yeah, I do. I, I have a couple of them. We, you know, I, I hire people that are homeless. I, you know, I give them the chance and, mm-hmm. and we've done that with a couple of folks. And these are folks that now have not only their own cars, but their own homes and their own lives which is tremendous. But nice. one more recent one was we had, we hired someone that couldn't find a job anywhere and she came out of a drug court and nobody wanted anything to do with her, whatever, you know, stigma is alive, unfortunately in our world. Sure. Um, when my, my, you know, my HR team came to me and said, you know, we have another candidate and whatever. I said, well, what's the problem? They said, well, there's quite a history and, and the state is telling us we couldn't hire this person. I said, okay, well, I'm going to write a letter to the state to say, we're going to hire this person. So, <laughs> gonna, so we did it. And since then, she has just flourished in life. Yeah, right? come like on. Having a home to not just a, an apartment, but a home to live in, a car, a family. Life has changed in the past three years for her in, in such a way that you would never even know that she came through any other punitive or criminal justice system. And so we see stories like that constantly every year. We, we are more and more, we're hearing those stories. You know, more times than not, sometimes people just need a second chance and a set of people that believe in them and give them an opportunity to discover their fullest self and yeah. to reach the potential that is inherently there, designed in each one of us to reach with the right environment, with a healthy environment, with people that are curious about helping them kind of shepherd into that place that's theirs to live out and then to be able to contribute to things larger than themselves where the real joy and purpose steve that that's just terrific man you know i would love our listeners we're kind of winding the bend today here but i'd love our listeners as we begin to wind down to have a takeaway message from you of hope you know that comes from programs like yours and services that are available for them. If they're going through hard times, leave us with a message of hope about life can be good. One of hope, future, don't have to be alone in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our our mantra is hope greets you at the door and recovery is the expectation. Yes. The first word we put in our mantra and, and hope is the first thing you see when you walk through any door in our facility. Then we have hope signs everywhere. We're an organization that values hope. We value the self-determination and, and the empowerment of people, but sometimes people are hopeless. Yeah. And one thing we've learned is that we can hold hope for people until they're ready to yeah. just grab it out of our hands. 
You bet. That's how we work with people. And we're available as an organization 24-7. That was really important to me to be able to do that. Even, even you know, we have a warm line and the warm line is 24-7. The stabilization center, the rose houses are 24-7. So when people are in trouble at two in the morning, we're the people you can go to. So I want people to know that in our country, more and more of these are coming and that hope is out there. The other piece is that the traditional system is starting to learn more and more about this and embrace it. So they're they're now infusing people with lived experience in their services. They're now trying to grow that, that message of hope in their services. They're not all still good at it, but they're trying. And that's, yeah, that's, that's all that matters. Hopeful. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah. hope. Hope will meet you at the door and recovery is, ex- is an expectation. That last part, I, I love the hope at the door because people, one of the most difficult things with mental illness is that, and oftentimes the, the treatment that they receive, despite people's best intentions, convey a sense of hopelessness. I'm going to be on this cycle of this and the cycle of that. It's going to be, and it doesn't feel we're hopeful at all. And when you talk at the beginning of there's not just hope, but there's a future for you and you're not going to be alone in it. I love setting the bar the way you do recovery is an expectation, hopes at the door, but recovery is an expectation. You will recover and you will thrive. And there will be ways that you're going to, you're you're going to be able to reach your ceiling. Let's go see what it is. And I love that bar being set because the higher we set the bar, the higher we're going to achieve things. And you've been setting the bar in so many ways, Steve. It's it's phenomenal. And they're not going to be alone in it. That's huge. We're relational beings, but we forget that piece sometimes, you know, go out and do it and pull up your bootstraps and no, no, I'm going to help you pull up your bootstraps. You can help me pull up mine and let's do this together and let's watch and see what we can create in each other's lives and then the lives of those around us. So what a wonderful thing you're doing. You know, Steve, I would love our listeners to be able to learn more about you and to learn more about People USA after the show. Give us some ways that they can do so. Yeah, please go to our website. We're always improving it and, and it's looking pretty good now. It's it is w- cool. www.people-usa.org is our website. Please, you know, join us. That's awesome. Steve, you're a good man. It's been great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for our time together. Thanks. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Nice to have you. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Steve and me today. It's always great to have you with us as well. I'd like to remind you that our episode today, as well as an archive of all of our past podcasts and resource materials, can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. Thanks again for being with us today, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.